0: Welcome to Caribbean Mystics Podcast,
1: where we marry mysticism, superstition, and lore. I'm your host, Paulina.
0: And I'm your host, Gabrielle. And we are your resident Caribbean mystics.
1: Join us today as we explore the depths of real supernatural stories told
0: by real people located right in our very own backyard.
1: episode of Caribbean Mystics. A local fisherman recounts a mystifying experience one night while fishing. In the channel between Water Island and St. Thomas, he encounters a creature of unknown origins that shifts his perspective of the reality of an ancient cryptid.
2: Been on the water my whole life growing up. Grew up on water island, yeah. Small little island, two miles long, half a mile wide. 100 people year round. Times have changed, there's a lot more people here now. (laughs) I had a lot of freedom growing up. I was contained on an island, so I had the whole island at my disposal, do whatever I want. (laughs) A lot of fishing, playing outside. Fishing was the number one thing growing up, that's it. Any chance you get, you're going fishing. Pops always used to take me out on the the Wahoo growing up. We started out on that. Caught my first mahi when I was probably like seven years old on that boat, maybe, right here. Yeah, always got out on the ocean with him. Being on the ocean was always top priority, and that's actually what I do right now for a living. I'm a fisherman. I travel between St. Thomas and Nantucket in the summers fishing the big tunas. We'll go up there for five months of the year. But always called Water Island home, always been here. And um, like I say, I've been on the ocean my whole life. I've seen lots of things at night on the ocean, but what we saw that night the story I got for you here today is something I'm still trying to make sense of to this day. It all started one day, me and my buddy Micah. We grew up together, I mean. He would always come over Water Island, we'd go surfing at our little spot, and then we'd basically go fishing every chance we had. We wanted to go out for an evening fish. Every couple days we'd just go out, try and catch some fish to put in the freezer or the fridge to eat, you know, have a little something, seafood's always good. So I told him basically just meet me after work, we'll get all the squid, we'll get all the gear and we'll we'll head out and try and catch a couple yellowtail to go home and cook. We left right from there, we had all the gear, a couple Heinekens in, the, in a five gallon bucket with ice. We were out on my boat, high heels. It's a 17 foot cuddy cabin, little forward cabin in the bow. But you stand up on the bow section, basically you got the whole open deck behind you. We were all set, have a little couple hours of fun fishing just south of Water Island. Just right there, right outside the harbor two-and-a-half, three-mile ride, so it took us 10, 15 minutes. We got there right at around sunset, and we started making chum, waiting for the fish to float up. We're there catching a few fish. It was good. It was getting towards the end of the night. The fish kind of stopped biting, so it usually means the sharks or the barracuda are swimming around in the chum, and the yellowtail don't want to bite. So. I bring my line in, he starts bringing his in, and Micah still has his out, and he he hooks up to something and it starts taking off out his hand, line starts popping, skipping, jumping, the, the baller fall out his hand, it's flopping around on the deck going everywhere, and then it launches overboard and goes into the water. I'm like, wow. Well, that's a tough one, and it, it had a lot of meaning to him because his dad gave him a bunch of fishing gear before he'd passed, so it had sentimental value, and he's like, dude, we gotta find my hand line. I, I need it. I said, no problem, bro, let's haul the anchor. We'll drift down, we'll see if we could find it. So we haul the anchor up. We're heading over, we're turning the boat down to come down sea now, and I'm scanning with the flashlight going across both sides, left and right, looking back and forth, and I see his hand line, it's floating there, it's, it was blue. I'm like, there it is. We start pulling right up next to it. He grabs onto it. Sure as shit, that fish was still on the end of the line, you know, it was still there. He fights it for a little bit, and it just breaks off. I'm like, well, we almost got whatever was on the other side, you know? I still got the flashlight on for this whole ordeal and I'm scanning now and I'm like well let's start heading in And I putz and I'm just looking around with the flashlight and as I scan the flashlight across the top of the water I make out this shadow of a figure just some creature. I thought it was a shark as I came across I seen the shadow but the back tail section was going up and down like a porpoise as I came up on its head it was a clear, human-looking head with these two big bug eyes. They were the size of softballs, looking, beaming right at me. But when I shined the light on them, it was like, it didn't glisten or reflect back like a normal animal. It kind of like absorbed all the light when I shined it. And I'm like, what the hell? It's like glowing, these two big bug eyes. I'm like, what is that? I took like two steps to the middle of the boat towards Mike, I'm like, what the hell is that in the water? For at least a full three seconds we see this sea creature of some sort just comes swimming right alongside the boat towards the bow and as we're looking at it it had this human upper body like complete upper torso down to right where the chest plate would be was all like human two arms down its side from the chest plate going down was a porpoise tail I mean it's something it's crazy like and it had no fin on the back or anything like that. It was like a smooth back like a human going into a tail. I couldn't make out if it had any scales or anything like that, but it was just this smooth looking skin like when it passed by it was this milkish, green, tan, I don't even know how to describe it, but When it came across the side to where I was standing, it was within three, four feet of me, and I could clearly make out a head with this uh, ridge going across from the front to the back with these two creases like on each side to make it cut through the water fast. And like I say, when I hit this thing with the flashlight, it was like these two big bug eyes the size of softballs, literally. Three inches on each side, perfectly on each side like a, a human's eyes would be. And when it went under the boat, it never came out the other side. So it like kind of knew where the blind spot was. We never saw it come out the other side, which was a weird thing. I'm looking like I took two steps towards the middle of the boat and watched it go under the bow and that was it. after that whole ordeal we basically wrapped it up from there we we've come to agree that it was clearly a mermaid what we saw i mean he he'll tell you the same story i mean there's nothing else in the ocean that that moves like that i've been out there in the middle of the night seen some big swordfish come up to the side of the boat i've seen tunas seen a lot of big sea creatures out there whales this thing had a head. I've seen porpoise cutting across in a light at night that you can clearly make out their nose, like their little beak. I mean, there's no manatee that's gonna look like this. It was slim, it was 175 pounds, 200 pounds. It was a, like a standard human length too. It was six feet long. Overall, maybe a little more than that. They know a lot more about outer space than they do about our own ocean. <laughs> always have in the back of my mind (laughs) every time i go on a boat at night it's like yeah there's stuff out there that we don't know we can't explain clearly i don't even know what it was that i what i saw in the water like i'll remember this three seconds for the rest of my life but it was definitely something undescribable a sea creature they're clearly here with us anything that you think is out there is out there and there's always a bigger fish definitely there's always a bigger fish
0: hey guys welcome back again to another episode of caribbean mystics podcast i am gabrielle and i am your host hi i'm paulina so first and foremost paulina i have to say thank you because you did a lot of the legwork to even track down this story as well as paulina to travel like inter island in order to go and meet up with clyde to record this so thank you to you for um taking the extra
1: effort and doing that you didn't have to Of course. Oh my god, are you crazy? When I heard about this story, (laughs) I'm like, I will travel across the world and all oceans to catch this one because how often do you come across a mermaid story? I've heard lots of ghost stories, lots of like Bigfoot, ghosts, paranormal activity, hauntings, but I've never once heard someone that's talked about actual mermaid or some kind of sea creature in the water especially our waters so yeah i had to go above and beyond i love going to water island too it's it's such a fun place it's like a little adventure so i filmed it as well so i'm gonna put it on our social media when i get around to editing it but it's a hop skip away literally right off crown bay marina off saint thomas and you take a little boat ride then you take a little golf cart ride and uh you're there I could definitely agree with that because growing up in a virgin
0: Islands, I don't feel like we have like mermaid lore. You know, like you know of mermaids. I think that a lot of young girls, especially living at Island Life, you could relate to like movies like The Little Mermaid. You know, like that was always my favorite Disney princess because there was a lot of like Caribbean themes within the movie. But in terms of us having our own mermaid lore, we we don't really have and so when you started on this journey to look for mermaid stories, I was a little bit skeptical, you know, if you would get any because it's not something that is widely spoken about. And I have a lot of family members that are fishermen and growing up, it was yeah. not a topic of conversation. They more so spoke about, you know, like this big fish to catch, the the sharks coming at their chum. So it was really great that you were able to find the story, and I really am happy that we got something out of Water Island because I even questioned whether we would get any representation because Water Island is such a small population, but I know that you wanted to kind of go into Water Island history a little bit and talk a little bit about that island, so I'll let you take it from here.
1: Yeah, let me also piggyback on what you were talking about, Fisherman, is that I... Also, love the story because Clyde is a full time fisherman. Like, this is what he does for a living. This is what he's done most of his life. I truly believe that he's been on the water more often than land, (laughs) you know? So, this is a reliable source. This isn't just somebody like a tourist, like going on a guided night tour, like night fishing trip that's like, yo, I saw something weird in the water. This is a reliable person that, if there's anybody that wouldn't be able to identify, shit in the water, other than a marine biologist, (laughs) fisherman is probably my second guess, you know. I completely agree. And Clyde isn't just
0: familiar with the ocean, he's familiar with these waters.
1: Which is like a whole nother aspect as well. So let's go into the history of Water Island. I really want to research that because I like to give historical references to the places that we get these stories from because you never know how it might relate. So here's a couple of fun facts and history about Water Island. So this is two and a half miles long, like Clyde was saying, half a mile wide. There's probably around 200 people, maybe more now, because the last census that I researched, they said it was like 106. So it's on the south side of St. Thomas, right off Crown Bay Marina. Literally like a five minute boat ride. The first recorded inhabitants were the Arawaks in the early 1400s. They found evidence of, like, pottery, and they found a graveyard too, I believe. I think there were two burial grounds that they found. In the days of piracy, it was used for both anchorage and freshwater because there were many freshwater ponds that used to be there, hence the name Water Island. Then in the 1600s, they used it for grazing cattle and goats owned by the DWIC, Danish West Indies Company, to feed the colonists on St. Thomas. And in the history of ownership post-colonization... It was, you know, it was uncommon to find non-white plantation owners back then, but there were actually a numerous amount of free men of color that owned and operated plantations on Water Island for a long period of time. And they say that it was tolerated more because Water Island was less ideal for um, farming and plantations. So in the 18th century, they used it for livestock and cotton production, no, the population surged to a whopping 111 people. Around 1815, it kind of died down because it said the plantations were kind of abandoned afterwards towards um emancipation in 1848. Then it was kind of sold off to the Danish East Asiatic Company in 1905 for $21,000. And then the U.S. in 1917 bought what we know today as the Virgin Islands, but not Water Island till 1944 for $10,000. So it, I didn't even know that that Water Island was still part of the Danish East Asiatic Company until 1944. So after the U.S. bought Water Island in 1944, they immediately began construction of a defense installation called Fort Sagara. It included plans for barracks, gun emplacements, watchtowers, underground bunkers, but World War II ended before its completion. The transportation, water, sewage, and power systems were established during military presence, and they actually, the Army's Chemical Warfare Division, used sections of Water Island for several years as testing grounds for poisonous gases. Then, officially, in 1950, the Department of Defense turned it over to the Department of Interior, who leased it to private developers for for about 40 years, and they built hotels and private homes. Then Hurricane Hugo came in 1989 and severely damaged the hotel, and they had to close. And their lease ran out three years later, and they didn't want to renew it. So, officially, December 12th, 1996, the government they transferred the island to the USVI territorial government, and it officially became the fourth U.S. Virgin Island in ninety six.
0: <laughs> I really appreciate that extensive information because, <clears throat> through the lens of a Virgin Islander, that's not. I feel like Water Island is the forgotten <laughs> Virgin Islands. Yeah. Um and we didn't also. It's, yeah, we, we didn't forget you here at the Caribbean Mystics <laughs> podcast. And also, because of its limited population, you know, like it's usually not um, included as much in the conversation. But what's really interesting is that Water Island is the smallest Virgin Island, but it's also the oldest Virgin Island. Whereas St. Croix, which is the largest of the islands, is actually the youngest of the islands. I didn't know that either. This tiny little island had so much action. And let me tell you some ruckadoo about what a school chair at MC about Fort Sagara. Ooh, tell us. They were doing chemical warfare on the testing chemical warfare on the island. And as recent as the 90s, people were still finding undetonated bombs on Water Island, which called into question the military's notorious frequent occurrence of them not cleaning up their messes, uh, which was similarly done in a much larger scale on the island of Vieques, which is just a little bit of a stone throw away from St. Thomas and Water Island. Um, But there's this MO that is synonymous with our United States military, where they will use these islands to carry out um, some of their testing but they don't actually go back and clean up as as they should so just a little addition on to that but as it relates to like the mermaids just to pull it back in to the conversation you know like growing up in the virgin islands the mermaids weren't a big lore but wide scale in the caribbean mermaids are mentioned in various facets and so in the taíno culture and for those of you who are not familiar the taíno indigenous people are not died out there is a large population of people who have taíno ancestry specifically on islands like Puerto Rico or even in Dominica a lot of the culture has been kept and has continued to be pushed forward to other generations younger generations but the taíno have a entity called Icaia, which is a mermaid like entity And in the Caribbean, I find that there is a common theme around the mermaids being beautiful women who lure men into their entrapments and either kill them or use them for their own bidding. Specifically for the Aikaia, these women are extremely beautiful and they are known to be givers of pleasure in exchange for a man's free will. And so if you make the agreement with her to experience, you know, her her luster, hmm. so to say, without getting too vulgar, then you are also making an agreement to give up your sovereignty as a person. And in other parts of the Caribbean, you know, like in Jamaica, they have river maids, which is, again, common thread. They are these mermaid-like entities, and they sit along the riverbanks, and they will oftentimes be there sitting on the rocks, you know, combing through their hair. They'll be singing. They have this beautiful voice, and their voice lures men to the riverside, and when the men come close enough to them, they drown them. So when men go missing, oftentimes a... Frequent suspicion is that they were taken by a river maid. And then you have entities like La Siren, which I don't know that I'm pronouncing that properly. But is it the
1: French La sirène yes. I think? La sirène Yeah. Something like
0: that. So they are the Haitian version of the mermaid. And then in African spirituality, there is a vast conversation around the mermaid as it relates to entities such as Mamiwata and uh, Yemaya. And these water spirits are venerated in places like West, Central, and South Africa, as well as in the African diaspora, in the Caribbean, as well as South America. And these water spirits are oftentimes seen as female, and while they are known to participate in some of the same affairs as the aicaia or the river maids they are also bringers of of assistance or good fortune so i say that to say that there are stories around mermaids you know like taking the lives of of men or even stealing children so i saw an interesting story online about a little girl going missing by an ocean side and the belief being that she was taken by mermaids but there are also instances where mermaids will see a stranded person in the ocean maybe they both sink um or a wave you know flips over the boat and the mermaid will come and carry this sailor to safety i guess Mm -hmm. even christopher columbus who is not the most reputable person i must say but on january 9th 1493 he recorded in his journal that off the coast of the dominican republic he had seen three mermaids that were swimming So scientists have come forward and they're just like, oh, well, what he probably saw was the Caribbean manatees. But I just feel like the description of what a mermaid looks like by those who have claimed to see her and a manatee is like vastly different. Like I can't imagine there being too many similarities outside of like they swim in and the tail might be kind of similar.
1: Yeah, it's uh, funny because I kind of came across that same research with christopher columbus and there's you know scientists today have debunked that because you know men are out at sea for long periods of time and they become delirious and deprived from social contact manatees they look awfully like people in certain lights and angles and i don't know i don't know i don't know how much i believe that you know more or less because it was so long ago how are we proven to debunk what he saw you know what i mean i think it could go either way
0: I just think it's interesting that in so many different parts of the world, there's a lot of acknowledgement about the mermaid. Ancient times, when the pyramids were being made, mermaids were etched onto the walls of the pyramids. I feel like the concept of the mermaid, it feels to me, don't shoot the messenger, but it feels to me that the origins of the mermaid, the true origins, stemmed in Africa. And since then, it moved To different parts of the world and every single culture and people has created its own interpretation and their own relationship with it but it just feels like when you look back at the very early depictions of mermaids like the earliest you're looking at like some of the first civilizations you're looking at mesopotamia and you know sumer yeah i don't know that the mermaid has european origins i think that it's
1: I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, I think this is this is my, like, if you're looking at the continent, like the land masses when they were one at yes. one point, and then they spread, then, yeah, you know, I think the majority of people, and they look at our DNA as well, like we all root and start from Africa, so that makes sense. Yeah. We have like a history amnesia of humanity that we don't know what happened to us back then, but... There was so much commonality between these cultures and there was no way that they could communicate to be like, hey, we, we got a mermaid here too. Oh, you got a mermaid? So yeah, I thought that was a good point that you brought up.
0: I definitely agree on the historical amnesia and I think that some of that has been done on purpose. I, I'm a conspiracy theorist at heart and I feel like there has been a lot of concealing that has been done by the various governments, the elite and I think that just as much as there is a lot of concealment of cosmic ongoings, I think that there is a lot of cover up about our oceans as well. And when you think about it, like eighty percent of our oceans, I would venture to say more have not been uh, explored, and or so they say, have not been explored. And there is a lot of extraterrestrial phenomenon that occurs in the virgin islands and puerto rico area and in the waters and i only say that to say because i know that's getting a little off topic on the mermaids but i just feel like there is a lot that we don't know and i feel like there
1: is a concerted effort to explain it away absolutely i mean since we're on the topic of underwater i thought it would be interesting to introduce our listeners to the puerto rico trench Because I'm thinking if there were mermaids or some kind of something, civilization or weird cryptids, where would they live? If they were so rare, such a rare sighting to see when these waters are frequently fished and dived, where would they be living and hiding? So I kind of looked at the underwater topography of the Virgin Islands and found out about the Puerto Rico Trench. I roughly knew about it, but not as in depth as I'm about to get. The Puerto Rico Trench is the deepest part of the Atlantic Ocean and Caribbean Sea. It actually separates the two waters. If you could drop, just to give you reference, Mount Everest at the bottom of the trench, its peak would form a hill just above the water. It's interesting because this is the North American and the Caribbean tectonic plates, and they're actually scraping by each other, creating a huge transform fault. So the Caribbean is shifting to the east, And the North American plate is shifting to the West. And this has been going on for about 70 million years. What else is weird is that the North American plate is being subducted by the smaller Caribbean plate. So it's actually going underneath it a little bit. And that's also why there have been historical tsunamis and earthquakes over time. And there's also a fault that lies in there, too, that's similar to the San Andreas Anyways, I'm getting a little off topic. The deepest part is just over 5.3 miles, 30,000 feet, 8,600 meters. That's about 83 football fields. It's about over 800 times the pressure at sea level. So I don't know if there'd be anything living that deep because that amount of pressure is so intense. The only kind of life that would be down there would be like microscopic Because it's extremely cold, there's no plant life, there's no light. But I'll get into the different zones in a minute. Another fun fact about this trench is that there's also a mud volcano about 25,919 feet below that's spewing molten mud about 6.2 miles high. That's very <laughs> interesting. That kind of
0: <laughs> I've never heard of this. Yeah. I didn't even know like that was a thing that could exist. I think that there's a lot of mysteries around the Puerto Rico Trench because it's so undiscovered
1: and, and there's not a lot of understanding around it. Well, one of the main reasons why it's such a pain to research and explore is because there's something called a negative gravity anomaly down there. So the bottom has a really strong downward pull. It makes all the devices go haywire, all their equipment, and this is actually a really natural phenomenon that happens. So there hasn't really been too much research because of that reason. It makes it really hard. I think that where
0: we're located in the world, it's quite possible that we are at where the ancient civilization, the lost civilization of Atlantis, used to be. And I think that mermaids, based off of the research that they've been able to gather, have had connections to this lost city of Atlantis, as well as Lemuria. And Lemuria, for those of you who don't know, is where present day the Hawaiian Islands are. As we know, the Hawaiian Islands are located in the Pacific Ocean. It's believed that the lost civilization of Atlantis, which I don't know is as lost as we think it is, is located in the Atlantic Ocean. There are some people that theorize that there are these underground tunnels, like these under ocean tunnels, that lead from one ocean to the next. Hmm. And so this is why various civilizations have had their own experiences with mermaids because these tunnels are used by all types of creatures to travel. It's a lot of the same, you know, like there's a a sea monster called a lusca that is located in the Bahamas and they travel by way of the Blue Holes and so it's believed that those blue holes are like these huge they haven't even been able to explore them but it's believed that they lead into these underground tunnels so i know everybody at this point is rolling their eyes and they're just like (laughs) gabby is always trying and pushing my son and the truth is is yes I am always trying and pushing because I just feel like we are living in a holographic universe and everything that we have before us has been created for us, everything. And so I, there's so much evidence that you can look at to support somebody's claims. And so I think that there's a lot of interrelation here. And I, I keep going back to the UFOs because there are so many accounts of UFOs being seen going into the lake in puerto rico or going into the water like literally flying into the water and disappearing and one has to question why are these people having so many similar sightings and in the event they are telling the truth in the event that this is factual like all i'm asking is for people to step outside the monkey mind and the logic for a minute and just entertain the thought that maybe there is something about these tunnels that are under the ocean that are being used by things that we have yet to understand. And could we imagine that maybe these tunnels are being used by these creatures that we once perceived as these mythical creatures? At the end of the day, everything that you have conceived in your mind, there is a, a tangible origin to it. We don't, we haven't made up anything that we didn't dream or see or hear about.
1: You know what I'm saying? Like there's truth in everything, even in small things. So like that gravitational pull that's at the bottom of this trench, I'm like, well, maybe that's the hole, you know, that they could travel through. But then it contradicts my other Finding is that those zones that are so deep is like near impossible for anything to survive. I mean, it's 800 times the amount of pressure. And like I was saying, in that deep of ocean, life is microscopic, unless it's something we've never studied or seen before. And they've developed some way to thrive down there. So it got me thinking like, if mermaids were real, what would they look like? And How would they have to develop to survive in the ocean? So like I was saying, anything living that deep, 27,000 feet. There have to be super hardy and super simple in structure. So there's no light, no plant life, extremely cold and mostly microscopic. Just above, they're a little bit more complex now, like the dragonfish. It's got razor sharp teeth and glowing organs known as photophores that compensate for the lack of light. So that triggered my memory of his story of the glowing eyes, because maybe these eyes were designed for deeper depths. So I'm thinking this creature, it's got to be somewhere in between where it's just deep enough where we can't see and shallow enough where it can thrive. So another point that is he describes the color of this creature's skin. He says it's like a milky white, tannish, greenish, dark on one side And light on the other. Similar to orcas and whales. Because from above, they would blend into the depths of the ocean. And from below, they would blend into the sunbeams. So that's a form of camouflage. If these intelligent creatures were in the oceans, they would be battling against large marine creatures as well. You know, sharks and other predators. So they would have to develop some form of camouflage. If mermaids, if these creatures were... Subject to natural selection and evolutionary forces, they'd most likely also be hairless. And most sea mammals are born with hair, but they fall out after. So that's another similar thing. There's also this theory called the aquatic ape theory, and it suggests that at some point in the evolutionary chain for humanity, there was a period of time when there was an aquatic or semi-aquatic stage, but it's still kind of shaky. If I was to use a hypothesis, it makes it impossible for mermaids to have the lower torso of a fish with scales and webbing. But he didn't describe scales. So this is where I'm going with this. Rather, their lower bodies would resemble something more along the lines of a taut skin physiology of a marine mammal like dolphins or whales or porpoises, which is exactly what Clyde described. And that makes a lot more sense to me.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense to me as well. And I think that our interpretations of what a mermaid looks like, um, I feel like there again is this common theme of like, you know, beautiful woman, you know, like enchantress. And so I think that like I said, I think that there's truth in everything, but I also think that oftentimes messages and stories become convoluted as time passes because everyone wants to add in their own little twist you know like everyone wants to make the story even more exciting than before and I think that there is a common theme um, specifically in Caribbean lore and legend that takes the feminine and villainizes it and so it's a really good story when you can make this moment extra sexy and also, you know, like an attacker of men and give these human features and, and really like, you know, sexualize this entity. But I feel like your description as well as Clyde's description to me makes the most sense. If we if we had to sit here and we had to marry the magic and the logic, this is where I think would be a fair and equal yeah. playing field.
1: Well, that's what got me so fascinated about it, too, is, you you know, there is something called convergent evolution. And it's the reason why um, marine mammals like dolphins and whales, they look so different from fish, but very similar. You know, those creatures, ancestors evolved on the land and then went back to the sea. So it would make sense if like a human was to have this convergent evolution, it would be more like those marine mammals than an actual fish. Last point of what a mermaid would have to entail if they did exist in these oceans. So a species of human-sized fish would also need a set of gills multiple times the size of their body to inhale enough oxygen to power an intelligent brain, unless they came up for air like other breathing mammals. Again, we're going into the mammals. But then that also makes me think the sightings would be more frequent if they came up for air regularly like that. So I feel like this mermaid would have to develop a different type of way to attain oxygen or maybe they don't need it at all. But if mermaids had enough time to evolve, they could develop a new method through bioelectrosis. They could use their own body energy to split hydrogen and oxygen into a gaseous form and exhaling hydrogen but they'd have to eat at least five extra meals a day to gain this energy I mean if you think about that why are mermaids so rare they I don't think they come up for air regularly like that or like I said we'd have more sightings so there's got to be another way that these creatures have thrived in the ocean and then the last point I wanted to make referencing Clyde's witness that night is he describes the big, giant eyes. He compares them to uh, swordfish eyes, like three inches in diameter, these huge plates. What is the purpose of these large eyes? You know, and they say swordfish eye, they let more light in than a human's eye, allowing the fish to see better than humans in darker conditions. Swordfish frequent waters depths down to 800 meters, 2,600 feet. So... If a swordfish can go down there and dive for prey, why couldn't a creature like this? So, and the trenches right there. Maybe these are optimal environment. Maybe this isn't an optimal environment for a sea creature such as this mermaid. I feel
0: like I've seen in like science class where there's like an angler fl- angler fish. And I want to say that's the name of it, but they're like one of the fish that are found at one of the deepest depths. And it usually like has a little light kind of thing that hangs in front of its face. But I believe in in just recalling those pictures, I remember seeing like super large eyes. So when I heard Clyde mention it in his story, I was just like, this actually um, makes a lot of sense to me based off of what I know about the creatures that they have found in the deepest depths of the ocean and kind of the features that those creatures would have. I would also also venture to say, oh, this is what I was going to say, that I want to say that it's possible that if we were to keep on with my underwater, you know, tunnels, I want to say that there would be tunnels that have these like oxygen chambers, you know, like these little pockets of oxygen in which they can kind of also get whatever oxygen they need and I also don't doubt that they've been able as you mentioned to just evolution wise that they've been able to extract the oxygen from the water of some sort and be able to use that as a surplus Mm. of air
1: I didn't even think about that point and you know what that got me leading (laughs) down is those underwater volcanoes maybe they're producing some Mm -hmm. sort of oxygen bubbles too somewhere so look at us we could be marine biologists. I feel like we could be here all day. And I gotta say, like, you really
0: came out with some real science. I mean, you always come out with the science. But, like, you came with so much information, like, about even the anatomical makeup of these creatures. Like, you did your due diligence. Like, kudos to you.
1: Well... Thank you. Well, you know, I'm noticing the more we record, there are some episodes where you thrive immensely with the information. And I think it's because it just relates more. And I don't feel like I have much of an input. Like Teresa's story, it was just so wild. Like, all I could say is maybe there were just some tourists and it was a coincidence, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. But then there are episodes like this where I'm like, okay, this is something I can grasp and actually research. And I've always been curious myself if there were mermaids like what would they anatomically look like how would they develop so it's definitely like just a curiosity of mine as well i completely agree is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with today i guess some final thoughts because i gotta play skeptic like hardcore skeptic too with some of these stories just to you know feed that flame is that there's a lot of bunk news out there there's a lot of fake Evidence, So it's very hard to validate Clyde's story. I think because this is such a popular subject, this cryptid, there has been just as much fake news as well because people make money off that. They are fascinated by it and they make money, especially with social media nowadays. Everybody's got a camera. I was looking on TikTok. There's so much footage of mermaid found off the coast of Africa, mermaid found in fisherman's net. And, man, unless you got a real eye for Photoshop, CGI, and video editing, like, you can kind of spot it out, but it's getting better and better every day. The first fake news was in 1842. The first mermaid fake news by P.T. Barnum. He sewed a torso of a monkey and a tail of a fish, and he called it the Fiji Mermaid. And I'm sure if you see a picture, it's very familiar. Then Animal Planet in 2013 made a mockumentary about mermaid the body found. And then there's a manatee theory as well because manatees are the lengths of humans. They have a round head. Front flippers could resemble arms and their neck, their neck vertebrae actually allows them to turn their heads similar to us. So maybe in the right light and angle, they could look like that. However though, my personal opinion, I, I believe Clyde's story and I believe what he saw was actually what he describes and not a figment of his imagination nor some other, like a manatee or something because he has experience in the water and there were two other witnesses, which, by the way, I tried my hardest to get that second witness. So maybe we'll do a follow-up episode when I finally get him, but he is just as elusive as his mermaid. So,
0: Clyde's story for me rings to be true, and I know you're like, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it rings to be true, and I think from me because I'm such a historian. You know historical junkie i just feel like there is so much historical evidence to suggest that these creatures are more real than i feel like modern day we have been able to you know acknowledge within ourselves and i'm just always a believer that there are so many things that we just don't know about you know here and in, in our lord jesus's year of 2022 they just found a whole sinkhole in china you know, where there are species of plants and animals that have never been recorded yet. Wow. And this is this is like millions of years of like earth history that has been largely like not acknowledged, not known, misunderstood. And so if we can be finding these type of findings, if we could be finding these type of like natural structures... In this time, like I just feel like anything is possible. There is so much that we just do not know. I think that there is more that we don't know than we do know. I'm totally gonna look that up because that sounds so fascinating to me. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on another tantalate, tantalizing. I don't know where I was going. I was—I meant to say scintillating (laughs) or tantalizing. Tentacles. Yeah, (laughs) right um tantalizing episode of caribbean mystics podcast as always it is such an honor and pleasure to come here every single week and to be able to deep dive with paulina <laughs> on all things having to do with caribbean deep dive legend lore I see how you put that in history there. truth truth and most of it or all of it i'd like to believe um but if you like this episode don't forget to share it with your friends and family both of them and if you have a story Or you know of someone that has a story that would be an awesome fit for our podcast, please reach out to us. We
1: are recording for season two. Also, Clyde's wife, Colleen, is an artist, and I asked if she could draw up a depiction of what he saw that night. And boy, did she come through because this thing is freaking disturbing. (laughs) So make sure you go look at it. We'll post it up on all our social medias, Instagram, Facebook. It's at Caribbean Mystics Podcast. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. Go check it out. Leave a comment. Tell us what you think about this. All right. You guys have a wonderful week. See you next Thursday. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Caribbean Mystics podcast.
0: If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share with your family and friends. Like, follow, and subscribe to keep up with all of our spooky Caribbean content.
1: Do you have a story you'd like to share that took place in the Caribbean? Email us at Caribbean at gmail.com. That's Caribbean Mystics Podcast at gmail.com. Or check the show notes for more info.
0: Caribbean Mystics is created and hosted by Paulina Creakey and Gabrielle Carrard. Theme song is Folktale Juvé Rhythm by Bumi Marcano.
1: this episode of caribbean mystics is brought to you by alexandra marie photography for all your life moments raw and authentic captures in the unique landscapes of the virgin islands she specializes in wedding proposals events maternity senior portraits and family portraits and the great thing about it is she offers a local discount of 50 dollars off and wedding packages and loyalty discounts for returning clients. She's available to shoot on St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island. Alexandra Marie Photography. Call 340-690-2062 to book your next shoe or check her website at alexandramariephotography.zenfolio.com. Sage Sanctuary. This one-of-a-kind metaphysical shop is located on St. Thomas in the Yacht Haven Grand Shopping Plaza. They offer a unique collection of esoteric books, tarot and oracle decks, crystals, incense, apothecary herbs, and mystical resources to support the exploration of the sacred self. The sanctuary is home to multiple mediums, channels, and gifted psychics offering a glimpse into the seen and unseen. Akashic record readings, tarot readings, aura photography, dream interpretation, meditation, astrology sessions, various modalities of Reiki, energy healing, and more. Additionally, the sanctuary hosts a community calendar of magical events including weekly and monthly hands-on workshops expert lectures, guided meditations, sound baths, certification classes, and more. Make sure to call Sage Sanctuary today at 340-775-7253 or visit their website at sagesanctuary.com. That's sage, S-A-J-E, sanctuary.com.